the old way of running brands was kind of a command and control model. People are familiar with a major car maker makes a makes a vehicle. They advertise it. That's the vehicle you can buy for this price, and you 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 have a very kind of downward um, arc of communication from the brand to the consumer. What's going on now that we're seeing is that technology has allowed us to see the information flow both ways. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There, you'll find courses from folks like today's guest, Lucas Conley. Lucas has written three books in his career, the arc of which more or less follows the modern history of branding in America. His most recent Legacy in the Making, endeavors to describe how the notion of a legacy has undergone a bit of an identity crisis in an age where culture and communication thrive in the short term. He and I discuss how some major companies are suffering or succeeding in crafting brands that will develop into greater legacies. He reveals some of the essential steps to branding from his new book, and we dare to speculate what future generations might hold for corporate and industry leaders seeking to build legacies as well. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I am joined by Lucas Conley. Lucas, thank you so much for being on the show with us. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Tyler. I saw you on the Colbert Report about a decade ago. Do you remember this experience with Stephen Colbert? I'm sure you do. Uh, It was probably exactly 10 years ago. I think it was the fall of 2008. It was a super hilarious interview. And because it, I I rewatched it, of course, I definitely saw it when it happened. Um, But because it was so much fun and so funny, like I said, I rewatched it. I want to jump off here because I think it brings up a unique point as to what you're up to now. So on the show, you were uh, talking about the book OBD, Obsessive Branding Disorder, and you and Stephen, you know, character Stephen went through a, a back and forth um, of your own sort of promos that you were doing at the time. Uh, it was super funny. Um, it, it it kind of seemed like, you know, he was blocking your ability to, you know, get in a word edgewise occasionally. Um but at the end of the day, this was this interview was ultimately from your point about how the brand has overtaken the product in a lot of ways. And I think there was like a NASCAR romance novel on there, Sylvester Stallone pudding. It was hilarious. I mean, maybe you like, you know, supplied these particular items so that you could discuss them. But the interview focused on how branding had kind of taken over the quality of a product. And now you are on this show today to discuss your book, Legacy in the Making, the subtitle of which is Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World. And 
at first glance, I haven't read through the whole book yet. I've read, um, you know, the intro and some previews and that sort of thing. But I feel like what one might think is almost anathema to what you discussed with Stephen Colbert on that show that day, which is, you know, you were at one point critical of of what branding was doing or what companies and corporations were doing to branding. And this book that you wrote uh, with co-author Mark Miller seems to be about creating a robust brand. Is it true that there's a bit of friction there? Am I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's what you're trying to do is kind of go back on your word, but at first glance, that's how it seems to me. Absolutely. The, the, the arc of the three books that I've written is, is telling, um, the, the second book after I wrote obsessive branding disorder, which is, um, was more of a social critique really than anything. I mean, it was definitely a business book, but it was kind of asking, you know, just mainstream society to, look at how we absorb, how we digest brands and, and how they're treating us. Um, how, how, what I was noticing at the time mm-hmm. um, was working for Fast Company Magazine. I was reviewing books and more and more of these branding books were coming out. And it became clear to me that we were putting the cart before the horse. And following that book, I had the opportunity to work with a company called Method, which had, um, most people are familiar with their teardrop soap bottles. They came out of uh, Target initially and then blew up nationally, and it's a very big brand globally now. But Method had done a lot of things that, that people weren't doing at the time to build their brand, and they, they were very product forward. They were very customer service forward. They would they would they wouldn't even patent certain things because they were simply moving too fast mm-hmm. to worry about holding on to innovations because they had a, a vision for how they wanted to change the world. And I had the opportunity to work with the founders on a second book about how they built their brand. Um, flash forward to this third book, and I've taken that even further working with Mark Miller, who's a, a celebrated uh, strategist here in LA, who's worked with brands like Lexus and the Ritz-Carlton for years, and got to sit down and really talk to Mark about what is it that great brands do that's different from what we see as branding. In other words, what are those pieces of the, the really structure of a company that make it built to last for years to come. Um, because something that Mark and I have worked together, collaborated for years, recognized early on um, in discussing the idea for this book is that we, we are increasingly living in a short-term world where people are, are grasping after instant gratification and overnight success. And the idea of brands that last um, is, is something that we still crave. And so how, how do we do that? How do we create something that, that lasts in what feels like a shorter and shorter term world? In hopes of digging into maybe some of the particular ideas and keys that you found in writing this, I want to maybe ask about um, some case studies that may or may not actually be in the book. Um, but I, when I think about brands and the success of legacies, you know, there are many, many Fortune 500s that have been in that list of Fortune 500s for a while, but a large percentage, I can't remember who I heard this from, but it was a previous MentorBox uh, guest. It was something like 90% of Fortune 500 companies um, are new in the last like decade or something outrageous like that, where a lot of these brands, a lot of these companies are rotating in and out of that you know coveted um, high-level position of being a Fortune 500. And one of the most clear examples that I think we're dealing with right now is probably Facebook. You know, at one point it was just like the end all be all, like, holy crap, it, it's connecting the world in these fascinating ways. It's doing all these crazy things, making communities, et cetera. And now it's just under constant scrutiny, the advertising, um, just the practices on the back end that seem to be a little bit 
um, discriminatory, that sort of thing. It's it's really taking a hit, it seems, and we might be witnessing in the moment, you know, the fall of a brand, of a company, of a product, whatever it is. But ultimately, this this was kind of a short uh, lifespan that we're in right now. And Facebook has already started to kind of, you know, change some of its policies. They just got rid of the, the news program. And I'm not saying that Facebook will end, but I feel like what we're seeing is that crazy successful companies, entities, and brands are fully, you know, vulnerable to society's critique that will, you know, cause a downfall. Does this, does this sort of high level branding play into your book at all case studies like this? Yeah, absolutely. You, you touched on the Fortune 500. We touch on the um, the Standard and Poor's 500, the S and P 500, which is you know essentially an analog. The the S and P 500 um, has very similar numbers to what you described, and and they're very telling when you start to look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. In the 1920s, even up into the you know the 1950s and 60s, the average life of a lifespan of an S and P 500 company was close to 70 years. Today, it's closer to 15 years. And it's on its way towards 12 years by the estimate um, uh, from a researcher at Yale University that we cite in the book. That same study concluded that by 2027, 75% of the S&P 500 will have turned over. So we're we're seeing a a really high churn rate of the most successful brands or companies out there. And so, you know, you can ask the question why, you know, get into what is it about society right now that's... um, you know, is it the technology? Is it the consumer habits? Um, is it the you know the, the fact that we've become a much more global um, world? Um, and you can also ask, you know, what what are we doing wrong, and what can we change? And that was those latter questions are are, are what we really tried to get into um, in the book. We talk a bit about why in the introduction, and then we get into what is it that great brands brands that essentially transcend generations? What are they doing? And we ultimately have have kind of distilled that down to what we believe are five transformative ways of looking at building a company. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the most important of those five ways in today's economy, today's society, today's cultural landscape? Well, they're obviously interdependent, but without a question, the first step um, is the most important because if you don't take that step, you're not going to get to the other four. Um, And the first step is to follow a long-term personal ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the brands that we feature in this book at some level, whether they're led by the founder of the company or it's a refounder, somebody who's come in years later or taken over a hundred year old brand, there's something deeply personal to the leadership th- that they're aspiring to do. Um, whether it's, you know, change the world for the better or, or just, you know, to do something very specific to, um, their lives that, they have uh, experience in, you know, we have, we have people who've drawn on personal experience in this book to create um, uh, something in the world that, that wasn't there before. Um, and I think that that's, that's the, the, the real key ingredient for so many of these brands is that there's something driving the leadership of a brand, uh, of a company, uh, you know, whether it's a one person company or a 500 person company or a 10,000 person company to get up earlier in the morning, to stay later, because ultimately if you don't have that, that, that core desire to, to change the world in that way or to, to that long-term ambition, there are going to be a million other reasons, you know, a lot of them short-term distractions to, to stop, to, to go astray. That's really uplifting to hear. So those million other reasons, um, you know, of course, we're not going to dig into, but it sounds like in very sort of tacit or subtle ways, 
you know, that drive from the leadership really comes through probably in, you know, the best practices of the company that they're in, the, the products that they create, um, their design, their interface, whatever they're doing. It probably finds subtle ways of kind of trickling down through, you know, every level of the hierarchy of the company. But it it also likely makes its way into the market. And I suspect maybe in this in this book you're covering how, you know, certain great leaders do take on, you know, some sort of a status in the public. Um, I think of, you know, Steve Jobs, who's like universally uh, revered, especially around me here in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. Um, do you address that sort of thing? So, you know, in, in, insofar as you're talking about, you know, personal endeavor, um, do you look at great CEOs and kind of how they've, you know, begun to appear and be, and sorry, uh, do you look at people like great CEOs and great leaders and how the public responds and reacts to them? Yeah, absolutely, we do. The, it's interesting that you mentioned Facebook at the beginning because Mark Zuckerberg is is one of the five people that we we talk about as kind of a an example of somebody trying to build a modern legacy right now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really fascinating to watch as the book came out, the news about Facebook has really taken a turn. And it, it, it's 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 one of those moments as an author where you say this is you know this is both you know problematic because we we definitely looked at some of the things that Zuckerberg's done well, mm-hmm. but then it's also very telling for the message of the book, which is if you know when you step off your game, when you are not actively staying true to the vision that you set out to build, you you can fall off, and and it it is very clear right now that CEOs. You know, Elon Musk is a great example. When they're in the public eye and they're making personal statements, there's so many more distractions, so many more reasons to draw the the long term ambitions of the brand astray. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is what we say in the fifth chapter of the book. It, it, it's about having that diligence day in and day out to stay true to what your long term ambition is from the beginning to be able to keep that going. And, and like you said, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways that CEOs are now both the, the best thing that happens to brands and the worst thing that happens to brands. Speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, one thing that has popped up amid a lot of this criticism is that he's a robot. Um, there's, there's a lot of memes and things that sort of criticize just his ability to, uh, to be, you know, a personable person. And this is very interesting because I can't, I mean, I, there are plenty of instances where, you know, CEOs are attacked for the things that they've done, but it, in this case, he's really being almost like personally attacked in a social way, almost like in a bullying manner, as if all of his critics like knew him more seriously. And this is something that I think is kind of like a a second tier on top of maybe what you're talking about is of that personal endeavor. So Mark Zuckerberg clearly has that and he achieved it in many ways for a long time and arguably very much still continues to do that. And, you know, connecting the world, creating the social network, but he's also taking a lot of heat right now for just not being a, a very social person, kind of being awkward. And that kind of seems like the public, uh, takes that as if it is, you know, a, almost like the reverse of what you're suggesting with that step one. Is it subtly like leaking into what Facebook is as a product and his lack of social skills, if that's even true, it seems to be a largely an assumption by the people, but that potential lack of social skills ends up being the reason for like the, the accusation that Facebook is really just an advertising platform and that it's kind of 
you know, that it might be discriminatory here or just has bad practices there, that sort of thing. So is there a, a sort of pushback now that we're in the age of like social media and mass visibility and transparency that some CEOs and leaders are suffering from? I think so, right? I mean, it's, it's a very particular case with Facebook because it is a social media company, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and it is a, 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 the critique is perhaps about his social skills. So it, it is a unique situation and it's such a big brand and he's played such a large role and, and, and been an icon. Mm-hmm. But the, thematically, what we're, what we're kind of zeroing in on is, is what we talk about in, the, in the, the center of the book, the third chapter, which is about um, letting outsiders in. The, the, the old way of running brands was kind of a command and control model. People are familiar with, you know, uh, a major car maker makes a, makes a vehicle, they advertise it, that's the vehicle you can buy for this price. And you, you, you have a very kind of downward um, arc of communication from the brand to the consumer. What's going on now that we're seeing with, with you know, whether it's the leaders that are talking to, to uh, the consumers via something like Twitter and, and there's an exchange of dialogue and, and that, that um, allows consumers to really voice what they care about, what they think, their critiques, um, is that technology has allowed us to see the information flow both ways. Mm-hmm. And the brands that are taking advantage of that, that are letting outsiders in to really inform them, to carry the message forward, um, are building incredible influence because they're not just commanding and controlling. They're actually spreading their message with the help of the people that they're advocates, they're loyalists, the people that love them. And of course, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, that can turn on you as it seems like in some ways it has with Facebook. But um, staying on top of that by understanding what people are interested in, in people, what people want from the brand, what, what people can add to the brand and, you know, how you can harness that as, as a brand leader to elevate the brand um, with the help of the, the voice of the public. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate task and it is something that some of the best brands are, are starting to do in, in, in really um, pioneering ways right now. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Lucas Conley, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about legacies and branding. We've recorded a number of lectures featuring CEOs, industry experts, and thought leaders, as well as branding gurus. But per usual, those courses are made exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want access to those and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com today. All right, back to the show. As long as we're talking about the voice of the public, I am curious as to how much in the future you're looking as you do this research and as you, you know, increasingly become a thought leader on legacies and on brands, um, because generational differences and generational gaps or disagreements are very popular. There's obviously been a, a large public discourse, um, largely contained in in memes and uh, fora online about how the millennials are this, the millennials are that, we're lazy, we're something else, I'm a millennial, um, or, you know, we're suffering because jobs are not paying the same, you know, proportionally as they used to, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm thinking about right now is an interview that MentorBox recently did with um, somebody named Maxine Marcus. She's uh, a teenage CEO uh, who created a company around uh, marketing to teenagers, to Generation Z. And Generation Z has largely been visible through its activism more recently. So um, there was the the students from the, um, I can't remember what the school name was, but there was a school shooting and the students led a series of protests um, 
this was, you know, massive in the media. And in other activist cases like this, uh, students were, you know, teenage, literally high school students were very much leading the way. And what I've learned from these things and through Maxine Marcus is that the teenagers, they are like the first true digital natives where they all were given like smartphones in basically early middle school. And they've had access to the world's internet information at a very early age, like preteen age. And this really creates what I see. I'm only 25 years old, but I see the teenagers as being drastically different from me in their cultural taste, um, their opinions, and just the access that they have to things. Are you taking into account, you know, future generations that are going to be drastically different? Or is there a way of calculating what kind of different and to what extent their difference will be? It's a great question, and it's really timely, actually, Tyler, because we we are um, next week. We we're um, debuting part of our program um, called the New Legacy Makers, which celebrates five leaders, um, all of them from the next generation. Some of them as young as eleven years old, who are um, wow. showing how legacy is built from from entirely different angles than the traditional angles that we've uh, looked at in the past. Um, our, our book is, is full of brand builders and leaders who've built incredible brands. Some of them, some of the brands are over 150 years old. Some of them are very new. The new Legacy Maker Showcase that we're, we're debuting next week actually has an, an eye towards that next generation, and um, it's been it's been revealing. Uh, we've got coaches, we've got mentors. There's a filmmaker in there. All of them are finding new ways to share their story, whether it be the technology or media that they use, but also breaking boundaries about how what kinds of stories that they're telling um, and in unconventional ways um, and, and exhibiting the characteristics um, that, that we built the book around, which, you know, those five characteristics are that long-term personal ambition, behaving your beliefs, um, letting outsiders in, inventing your own game, and um, behaving perpetually and never stopping um, at never ceasing to build the legacy that you set out to build. What was the second one again? Uh, behaving your beliefs. Okay. This is one that I've had a lot of conversations with, I think, um, uh, through, you know, mentor box and with its guests, I would say, you know, Facebook, Uber, um, Airbnb, a lot of these companies that have had issues might be good examples of those who haven't exactly done that or the sort of, uh, the brand, and the the company cultures are out of line in a way. Um, I want to ask you, what impact do you think, you know, social, sociocultural, political beliefs have on the ability of a company to, or even an individual, to develop a legacy? In particular, we spoke with somebody named Fabian Geierhalter, who's wrote, written a couple books about branding. And he sets aside, you know, a chapter or two for um, recommending that your brand and your leadership, you know, take on a strong sort of socio-political belief. But it isn't like quintessential to all brands to do that. He gives some good examples of those who have and those that have had great uh, success doing those. But do you see an increasing necessity of, of brands and of companies to do that? Or is it still, you know, as long as there is that personal drive, that personal endeavor from leadership, that that's pretty much good to go in, in the way of creating a legacy. It, you know what I see rather than increasing necessity um, is, is actually just an increasing acceptance. Um, okay. So, so 
we do see, for example, and we profile several brands in the book that have um, what some might call radical messages or, or uh, proactive, unconventional messages. Um, one of the not-for-profits that we, we talk about in the Letting Outsiders In chapter is the it's Get, It Gets Better project. Um, and this is a group um, started by uh, Dan Savage and his partner who set out to um, communicate to young, gay, lesbian, transsexual teens that um, life gets better um, after high school, after their teens, when they've been bullied, that they're, they created an opportunity for um, people in their 20s, 30s, and older to share videos of their own personal experience with um, people who are you know, living in small towns, might be isolated, aren't necessarily seeing people like themselves. And this, this um, small project they, they started blew up to the point where even President Obama had, had put a video um, on the It Gets Better project. And so that they're now taking part around the country and around the world in a variety of different ways. But what they found was that their message was very well received and the, that the that consumers, the public has carried it forward. Um, they've been um, even you know, television and, and uh, documentary programs they've created as a result of this. So I, I think what what's, what's true out there is that the market is more and more willing to hear sociopolitical, sociocultural messages in, in a con- commercial environment. Um, and and they're, 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 as we've seen, more and more interested if those messages don't line up with their own to go to another brand. Mm-hmm. What about, again, the increased transparency and just almost the, I would argue that it has largely become necessary for brands and individual leaders to take stances on a variety of different things now that we're in this brutally divisive political culture. Um, you know, Twitter <laughs> gives anybody the ability to say, hey, McDonald's, what's your take on Trump or that sort of thing? And I think at like there, there is a point where most companies do respond to these messages, especially when something pretty outrageous or um, drastic takes place. A lot of companies, a lot of brands, a lot of individuals have responded. So I, I would argue that we're going in that direction where every brand, every company in some way or fashion is going to have to reveal what their, at least their leadership's take is, but at the end, at the end of the day, also how that affects, you know, their practices and their, their business procedures and just their general ethos. Do you think it's going in that direction as well? I, I, I do. I think the, that when the, the behavior beliefs chapter that we were describing um, and, and talking about the, the angle there is that as, as brands get more and more closer to their consumers, that as consumers get a better understanding of what those brands stand for, there's a clear opportunity not only for the brand to um, share that message, but also to react to unexpected um, things that come up. I mean, one of, the, one of the core messages in this book is that long-term thinkers actually act better and faster than people who are trying to capitalize on short-term trends. And part of that is when you clearly define your beliefs and values up front, when you've got those things set out and your, your, your own employees are, are prepared to represent those and, and live those out on the job, something that comes up at a, at, at a restaurant you own or at a grocery store you own or, or, or because of a product that you sell um, that makes goes viral and makes news, you have a core base of values and, and, and philosophies that, that allow you to respond in a way that, that is authentic. And I think what we've seen is kind of, it's almost like an awkward adolescence with the internet and with technology is that yeah. we've seen these companies stumble out of the gate in response to these scandals because they, they don't necessarily have a clear sense of 
really where they stand um, on, on particular topics. And, and that is mm-hmm. something that we see with, with these modern legacy brands that we celebrate in the book is that, that, that not only do they start with that long-term personal ambition, but that second step is, you know, what are, what are our values? What do we truly believe? And what are we trying to do here? Um, what, what's really interesting is so often we've heard those values are actually much more important than the products that or services that the company sells. So, you know, the honest company, for example, is, is we talk about the, the honest company in the second chapter, mm-hmm. they'll quickly tell you, you know, we might sell, you know, diapers and moisturizer and shampoo right, right now, but next year we, we could be selling entirely different products. It's not, the products aren't the point. The point is trying to create a cleaner, greener world. And we've heard that from multiple brands in different categories that the product is kind of secondary to the values. And that, that's inspiring because it, it is, it is um, I think, in part because of what culture now demands. If that's the case, and I'll, I'll pose this as a last question, if that's the case that the product can actually be secondary to you know, the brand and the ethos and the message and um, the overall goal, such as you know, a, a cleaner, greener world, it, it, the way this book is described is as you know, legacy, like legacies in the making are different from uh, traditional legacies. But does, is there still space, is it still possible for long-term brand and company legacies to exist, you know, over decades or even generations, do you think? I, I think the good example to answer that question is, is in the last chapter of the book with Taylor Guitars. They, they, the chapter is called Transcending Generations, or the, the, the story within the chapter is called Transcending Generations. And what, what happened there, what's happening there is the two founders of this company, which is a you know, very successful guitar company, the, the, the leading acoustic manufacturer, uh, I think in the world now. They've created a guitar that people love to play. That sounds amazing, but that, that really its primary characteristic is, is that people love playing this brand. They realized if we retire and sell this brand to another guitar company, to a private equity firm, you know, to somebody with, with um, a different agenda, they're going to probably produce the same types of things we've been producing just to, to kind of capitalize on what we've built. They might try and turn the screws and um, really squeeze more money out of the brand so it doesn't you know, produce to the high level of quality that we do. But the, 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 the belief in the guitar and, and the playability of the instrument will, won't carry forward. And you know, this is a, a crisis I think that a lot of founders reach is like, if I pass this thing forward, how will it last? You know, how will somebody have the same love for it that I did? And so what they decided is rather than just simply passing it on to somebody who could pay, pay them was that they would develop a succession plan with one of the master luthiers in their in their shop, and that's you know one of the, the best guitar builders that they had. So they've got a guy in his mid thirties now who's who they're grooming to um, take over the Taylor Guitar Brands while they're on the job, so they can share their passion with him as they work about what they love about the brand, how they built it, what they care about, so that he can carry that forward. And that, that, that quality of transcending generations, I think, is really, is really how we'll see modern legacies live on. Because if it's, if it's, if it's different tomorrow, um, as long as those core ideas you know, are still translating into the next generation, you'll see these brands carry forward, regardless of you know, whether they're, what types of guitars they're selling or what types of products they're selling. That's really fascinating. I feel like I hear stories akin to that in a lot of different industries or spheres where the the product is largely one that's um, creative uh, or in some ways contingent upon taste 
And uh, that, I mean, just, I think about uh, artisans that are craftsmen, craftswomen, craftspeople that, that become the CEOs. Like I think I've seen commercials and uh, stories about, you know, beer brewers and that sort of thing that end up becoming, you know, or like the master brewer is essentially like the company runner. And I'm curious as to how that can apply to in spaces where it isn't so much creative uh, or contingent upon taste. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would think about like maybe a software say, or, or, or some kind of hardware brand, the, the long-term personal ambition at the core of the founder's dream is, is generally where to look, we look to first. Um, and this is, this is true with clients who come in the doors at the legacy lab, you know, where we work. It, if they come in the door saying, I'm just looking to make a million dollars. Well, there's a lot of people who just want to make a million dollars. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. not a um, ambition that you could really, um, you know, kind of carve out in the market. Um, what we're, what, the kind of clients that we look for are the people who come in and say, I have, maybe it's an accounting firm. Maybe it's something that many of us would consider very dry, but I, I have a, I have a vision for how to change the field. You know, I have a vision for, for how to not be the best at what I'm doing, but be the only one, you know, um, whether it's particularly uh, green practices in accounting or some type of uh, new technology that is allowing me to serve customers in a new way. I think we're, we're starting to see people crack the boundaries of these very conventional categories that we've become so used to over the last hundred years and redefine them. And I think that that's, that's the most exciting part about the modern legacy builders that we see out there and those that we celebrate in this book, those that we're celebrating in that new legacy makers program that I mentioned is that a lot of these people are finding ways to redefine the industries in which they work. And, um, when you get back to that, that initial long-term ambition, you can usually, um, identify what it is that they're passionate about and what they're trying to change. Yeah, it's really exciting to think about how some of these industries and and just major companies could change if if that's how they pursue future leadership and that sort of thing. Um, it's difficult for a lot of established companies to accept, but we have yeah. seen brands that, that are are evolving, right? That are that are letting outsiders in, that are finding ways to uh, invent their own game. Absolutely, it's exciting. Um, before we sign off, if you'd like to give. Uh, a quick call to action to the folks that are listening, um, the three books and any way they can contact you or learn more about you and your research. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. The, the, the legacy lab.com is the place to start. That's our website. Um, the, uh, the book sprang out of work we've been doing since 2012, researching how people think about legacy. Um, we're also at the legacy lab on Twitter. Um, we're out there on Facebook as well and LinkedIn. Um, so you can find us of course, uh, on Amazon for the book as well as, um, uh, any local bookstore. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lucas. I look forward to hearing more from you and reading the book myself. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors, as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at mentorbox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. 
We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.